Tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Ed McGrogan talking with Pete Bodo. Uh, Pete, this is the first time I've actually had you on the podcast since Wimbledon ended. You were there for all two weeks. And it's a tournament that obviously always um, connects with tennis fans, probably most of all. Um, even a week outside of Wimbledon now, I think people still kind of have the tournament fresh in their minds. So much happened. You had two of the two 30-year-old players, two all-time greats winning the tournament. You had um, Nadal losing second round. You had Djokovic seeding the number one ranking despite um, you know a year's worth of almost just incredible results there. So really, you know, stepping away from it now for a week, kind of what, what's your real big takeaway from that tournament as a whole, thinking about it? Well, the big takeaway is that, you know, there's no big takeaway. That's the thing. I mean, a wonderful thing is this was one of the most kaleidoscopic tournaments I've seen in a long time, and it was a wonderful tournament from beginning to end, just full of surprises and crazy twists and turns. I mean, everything from from the golden set turned in by Yaroslav Shvedova to, you know, Johnny Murray, the doubles champion, the first British male uh, doubles champion, um, in in Wimbledon for for since 1936. So you know it was it was just everywhere you turned there was something new. You know, needless to say, the upset of Rafa. You know, the play of Roger, the fact that Murray gets to the final as an Englishman. You know, those are all. You know, I mean, everything came together. It really was. You know, I mean, the most impressive thing I suppose about it in a big picture was that you had two 30 year olds, all time greats, both coming through and winning. I think the fact that both of them did it made that kind of special. Yeah, both of them, uh, Federer and Serena Williams, are both in the news this week, actually, b- besides really their titles, even though the title is the reason that Federer is in the is in the news again. It's uh, winning Wimbledon got him the number one ranking and, and broke a long-standing and long-discussed tie atop the most weeks at number one with Pete Sampras, who Federer obviously has, has grown, grew up watching. Um, you know Pete, of course. You wrote his his biography with him. Um, you know for for that achievement there that that was that was one that was always mentioned as something that Federer never really could realistically achieve after we saw what happened with Nadal and Djokovic and them winning all the t- winning you know getting to all the Slam finals. But but here we are right now with Federer back at number one and almost it, it feels a little bit almost like 2009 again. It feels like a reset button really has been put on the whole men's circuit and in, in a good way I think. Well, yeah, except you got to wonder how long it could possibly last. I mean, I'd be the last one to rain on Rogers Parade, but, you know, I mean, this was just a wonderful, wonderful statement. If you had to write a narrative where, you know, you know, a kind of a dream story, an inspirational story for kids to watch or something, you couldn't come up with a better plot line than the one Roger worked this time around. The only thing he could possibly have done was made him 40 years old and coming out of retirement to do this, become number one, take 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 beach record, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there was, there was just, you know, it was just a, a magnificent moment. I think it's going to be hard for Roger to sustain that level. Uh, I don't know whether he can, whether he even needs to really. I mean, this was, this was the moment that was waiting to happen in his career. Most big players make a big statement before the very end. Connors had that run at the U S open in what 1991 or something. Of course he was in his forties, early forties, I think at the time, but you know, he did not win the tournament. Pete Sampras did win the tournament after two terrible years, one horrible year when he was, you know, ready to pack it in basically but he just always knew there was something still left in a tank. And now Roger joins that elite group of people who at age 30, you know, uh, you know, could still come through and make a big statement. And you couldn't have, you know, you couldn't have crafted a better storyline. 
And then Serena, like we're saying, also in the news this week, she ended up playing, um, winning Stanford. But besides besides that, on its own, Stanford wasn't a great field. But um, but but the fact that Serena is even playing tennis the week after a Grand Slam title, uh, you know, regardless of winning a slam, this is someone who I feel like as recently as a, a year or two ago. Um, was almost invisible outside of the slams, and 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 lately, especially this year, she has won many titles. I think have propelled her to that Wimbledon success. Um, you know, on the on the tour level, and what we see from Serena now is, you look at her record, and it's a, I believe, a 38 and three mark uh, through 2012. Um, sort of under the radar, I suppose, if if it can be said that for Serena, and just you know, continuing to kind of defy really convention as she's done, I think, throughout most of her career. Well, I don't know. I think, you know, under the radar is a little bit too strong a term here because Serena's never under the – Serena would be over the – on the radar even if she walked down to the 7-Eleven to get a giant Slurpee. So, I mean, you know, let's face it. She's, you know, she's whatever, – whenever she makes a move or whenever she appears at a tournament, she's going to get all kinds of eyeballs on her. But, you know, I think what, yeah, I think what this has shown really, uh, to me, a big part of this is that Serena, you know, whether she consciously sort of took this away from the past few months and years or not – is open to debate, I guess, but we'd have to ask her. But I think what she's finding out is that, boy, you can play a lot better when you play a lot. You know, she played uh, from Charleston on. She really was pretty much a full-time player, even though she had some niggling problems here and there. And the record shows that she's won, I think, 28 of the past 29 she's won. And she's in the groove. She's winning. She's, you know, she's, she's got that consistency again. I think one of the big things about Stanford was, and you're right, by the way, Eddie, I mean, you know, who would, you know, well, who, what was the last time a Grand Slam champion actually played the week after in a relatively small event. I mean, I, I was trying to think of it today, and I, I can't for the life of me remember. But, uh, you know, she's learned a lesson. I think she's really trying to peak for the Olympics. I think the subtext there is, you know, if, if it wasn't an Olympic year, does she play Stanford? Well, maybe, maybe not. On the other hand, you know, being an Olympic year, she could have said to Stanford, you know, no thanks. I need a couple weeks recuperation time, get some get some time on grass. It raises an interesting issue that I think is true for both the men and the women. You know, these tournaments in the summer now between Wimbledon and now between the Olympics, but generally speaking between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, have always been a good, a good time for American players to collect some ranking points, get some of that prize money going, you get a little bit of their, you know, mojo back, you know, if they needed it because of, you know, the hard court circuit is, you know, it's kind of like the Europeans on clay in the spring and they're still doing it. They're playing. I see this week, we've got a bunch of American boys in the Atlanta tournament. We've Serena now is done, which I think is a good thing for her, but you got to wonder, you know, at what point does the grass court mentality kick back and especially because the Olymp before the Olympics, because it's going to be held in just about two weeks time. Um, over over in London at Wimbledon. Yeah, you want you had to wonder if uh, Newport would sort of benefit from that little um, scheduling quirk where it's going to go back to grass. There, that's what I was kind of wondering about. Is um, I think in your piece today, you're around the world. You you really I think suggest that the weeks leading up to the Olympics um, take on a greater importance because of that. I, I was kind of juggling that in my head whether to think well I'm not sure if it would be of players best interest to kind of shut down for a couple weeks after Wimbledon you you do have sort of many players I, I think almost all of them are flying you know 
those at least born in the States, they're flying back here, then they're making the flight back to Europe. I suppose, you know, tennis players are long used to such travel and everything, but I, I was kind of wondering really, you know, what the what the mentality of players is in this sort of irregularly scheduled season where we're going to turn right back around and go to an event that I think in many cases players are treating with with as much, if not more, reverence than a Grand Slam title. Well, that's the funny thing, you know, that's kind of true. But then if that reverence is there, you know, where, you know, where are the people taking the time off to build up this event? Now, they've, they've basically had their grass court tune up. It's called Wimbledon, you know, funny as that sounds. And most of them played either Halle or Eastbourne or Nottingham or one of those tournaments anyway. So now basically they're dialed in on grass. Do you really now want to go to a hard court? change your game around a little bit, change your mentality around a little bit, deal with some of the heat and humidity issues that may come up and play. Well, you know, granted, if you're going to play one tournament, maybe you get away with that. But I think that if you were really targeting Wimbledon, I almost think that unless you really needed matches really badly in terms of the competition, you'd almost be better off just taking the time off and, you know, and and maintaining your grass court game, finding a nice place where you can go and hit balls on grass. Uh, The only other caveat there, by the way, is that I think the Wimbledon courts really are kind of special. I mean, they're really different from the Newport courts. They're different from all the other grass courts. Grass courts tend to be a lot a lot slicker and lower bouncing than the Wimbledon courts because of the big changes that Wimbledon made to, to in, enhance the game and get more rallies going and stuff. So I, I don't know exactly you know how much you're giving up by practicing on a different grass court other than Wimbledon, which is really not the same thing as if, say, practicing on hard courts, different hard courts. They tend to be the same. So it's, it's a tricky question, I think. But, but, you know, I wonder, especially with how much these guys have gone through in the spring and, 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 and summer, uh, although I guess the Americans are, are an exception because they didn't do very well on a clay court circuit, it would be an ideal time really to rest up and, and just really get your head around, teed up for the Olympics. Yeah. And one one thing I'm thinking about here is, um, you know, we're the main players here, of course, on the, on the men's side. That's the top four there. I, I think I do kind of agree with what you're saying earlier about Federer. That that really, I think Wimbledon was that statement where, really, the man has little, has almost nothing to prove anymore. I don't think he did before Wimbledon, but you know, with that 17th Slam, seventh Wimbledon, I think. As, as it has been for most of his career, it's kind of gravy on top from here on out. But the other three who are all coming off very different endings to their Wimbledon, um, Nadal, of course, going down the second round and you see reports kind of of that, of his knee injury resurfacing, whether um, he had to pull out an exhibition, for example, um, you know, not just any exhibition, this is a, a fairly important one against Djokovic in front of 80,000 people. So I think there's something to be said for that. And you have Djokovic who in a turn of events from the French Open when he played Federer, he goes down you know, fairly meekly, meekly at Wimbledon to Federer and loses the number one ranking. Um, you kind of wonder really maybe where he is at. Does he? He's not far behind Federer for number one, but it is an interesting statement. And then you have Murray, of course, to reach the final. Um, you know, did Murray give everything he had at that tournament? He does get to go back and try it again, essentially at uh, you know with different stakes, of course. So of those three men, I think maybe the question I have for you is what, which of those three really have the most to prove in this Olympic and this, you know, these upcoming summer weeks leading up into the U.S. Open? 
Well, I think I think in a way it's Djokovic because look, let's face it, Djokovic made made his intentions pretty clear uh, from the start of this year, saying his real priorities were the French Open and and the Olympic Games. Now we saw what happened at the French Open. He didn't win it. He lost in a final. You know, good effort to get to the final, but he 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 missed that opportunity to f- complete a career Grand Slam and become the first man since Rod Laver in the late 1960s to have all four Grand Slam titles at the same time. So he's coming in now, you know, with you know with you know as as well, you know, he loses. At Wimbledon, so now he's coming and he could really salvage. He could salvage, you know, his his dreams for this season really by winning the Olympic gold medal. And when you factor in what a you know patriotic guy he is and how proud he is to be a Serb, and you know basically the fact that Serbia has never been a power in the Olympic Games, I think him winning a gold medal, uh, you know, doing that would would be a great coup for him and for his nation, and just you know continue to even further solidify, if it's possible, his reputation as a kind of a national treasure. And an ambassador to the world at large, Nadal I think is in big trouble. I think you know some of my Spanish friends who are pretty close to his camp told me that uh, his 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 knee condition has now been down. I don't know if it's downgraded or upgraded from tendonitis to to tendon tendinopathy or something, which is a recurring condition of ten, tendinitis. So it's a more serious level of risk with, with his tendinitis there than we've we've had in the past. So, you know, he apparently, you know, I, I think, you know, he's carrying a flag for Spain in the Olympics, and I think that's going to mean a great deal to him. I think he wouldn't skip it for that, but I almost, I, I, I wonder if his, if he's realistically likes his own chances given the physical problems he's having and the fact that, after all, he still builds his year on a Grand Slams. The guy who watches Roger, actually, Actually, because, look, I mean, one more thing. All right, uh, Murray, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to imagine him after going through that emotional thing at Wimbledon, getting it back together for, you know, for the games. On the other hand, you know, it is, you know, I don't think the Wimbledon factor and the UK factor is going to mean that much. But it is best of three. And, you know, when he's on fire, he can, he can do a lot of damage. I think Federer is kind of the interesting guy to watch because, you know, he's, he's got so much confidence. He's so good on the grass. He's, he, you know, he, he, he's not hurt. He's not tired. He's not playing then again not, i don't think any of the big those big four are so you know but between now and, and the olympic Games. so you know we'll, we'll see what he does but he's he's in a pretty good position just to go out there and just feel good and take big cuts and see what happens it's true i mean he is going to get um you know going in with as, as good of a, a run as any of those and i'm sure he's going to be playing with stan of doubles again defending their gold medal um, I, I do wonder, I, there was long talk ago of him and Hengis playing mixed, but I know that's been put aside now. That's not going to happen. So, um, you know, f- some, summer of Roger, su- summer of George, anyone. So, it, you know, it could happen here. So it, it's um, it's a time, and like we said, it, it's going to all filter back in toward the U.S. Open, of course. But um, it's it's a summer, I think, of opportunity for a lot of these guys. So, um, Pete, again, thank you. We'll catch up. Just before the Olympics, of course, I'm Emmerich Rogan. Thanks for listening. Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.